Welcome to Lompoc Foursquare Church's podcast. Enjoy the message. Guys, we're in a series, Welcome Holy Spirit. We've been kind of posturing ourselves to be open to whatever Holy Spirit may want to say. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. We, we love you. We honor you. We acknowledge your presence. And one of the things that you said you would do is you would recall, you would help us understand all that Jesus taught. So as we turn to the word this morning, would you be the one who is our teacher? Help us understand what it is that you would communicate to us this morning. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. amen. All right. Hey, week one, we talked about the person of the Holy Spirit, who he is. Uh, last week, we talked about the Holy Spirit's role in testifying to the truth of Jesus as the risen Savior in the world around us. And this morning, we're going to talk about how the Holy Spirit came to be with us, the fulfillment of the promise of the Father. And I'm going to be borrowing really heavily from Dr. Steve Schell. He, he wrote a book called The Promise of the Father, and so I want to make sure I give him credit. There's a quote in his book I want to share with you this morning. He said this. He said, the human race was never designed to function without the Holy Spirit. The first humans were surrounded by his presence, and at the end of time, redeemed humanity will live in a city lighted by the glory of God. What is he saying there? He's saying that you and I were designed, and you and I are destined to live in the presence of the Holy Spirit. I'll talk to you about design in a minute, but this this destiny, this when we talk about living in fellowship with the Holy Spirit, this isn't something that a, a small group of people have come to believe in. This has always been God's plan for the entirety of humanity. Pointing to a, 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 a time in the future yet to come, the prophet, prophet Habakkuk said, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God like the waters cover the sea. He's saying there will be a moment in time where we live once again fully immersed in the presence of the Holy Spirit. In other words, God is going to finish as he began with his people living fully immersed in his presence. And I don't mean he's present like I'm present with you today. When, when we talk about the Holy Spirit being present at creation and in the future, we're talking about being immersed in his presence the way a fish is immersed in water. This has always been God's plan. Well, if it's always been God's plan, if it's how things started, what happened? And if that's what happened, what did God do about it? We mentioned two weeks ago, touch on it again last week, that the Holy Spirit was present, was an agent in creation. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit together formed man and woman, and he placed them in a garden full of his presence. Jesus taught us to pray, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That's how things started. It was in Eden as it is in heaven. No sickness, no sorrow, no sin, no brokenness, no pain. And he made them in the image of God, and he gave them, the Bible word is dominion over creation. He, he, filled, he, he created them in his image, placed them in a garden full of his presence, and said, you steward this, you take care of this for me. And when Scripture says we were made in the image of God, it means that, well, he created us intelligent most of the time, rational, and initially pure, without sin. We could experience joy. We could experience sorrow. And most importantly, in our relationship with God, we could experience 
love. And God gave Adam and Eve the capacity to make decisions, to make choices. And you might think, why would he do that? That was a horrible decision. Look at the mess they made. Seems like it created a whole lot of heartache. But God's goal for mankind was not simply that they would be innocent, but they would become truly good. And in order to be good, you have to have the capacity, the ability to make moral choices. You have to choose right rather than wrong. So God created us with the capacity to make moral decisions, and then he strategically placed in the Garden of Eden the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and said, make good choices. Don't eat of that. We know the story. They made the decision to do what was right in their own eyes. They rebelled against a good God, ate of the fruit that he had told them not to. And one of the horrible consequences of that decision was the Holy Spirit withdrew. The presence of Holy Spirit that they lived with daily was lifted from them. This is why, as you read the story in Genesis, they suddenly felt naked and ashamed. They suddenly felt uncovered because the presence of the Spirit of God was lifted from them. When they chose to rebel against God, when they sinned, sin infected them like a virus. It infected the host, and then they passed it along to others. And they they could still turn to God for help, but it, it seemed as if it was harder to hear his voice the way they had before. And because their bodies were infected, because they were unclean, they were no longer a suitable dwelling place for a holy spirit. Because we were made unclean, unholy by our decision to sin, we were no longer a vessel where a Holy Spirit could dwell because God will not reside in the presence of sin that way. But God didn't give up on his plan. His plan was always that men and women would live fully in his presence. He had to go about it another way. God never gives up on his original goal because his original goal, as it comes from him, is good and right and pure. And so when we make a mistake, God doesn't change his goal. He simply goes to reach it another way. In Genesis 3, he begins to talk about the new way he will go about this goal. He speaks to the serpent and he says, because you've done this, because you've tempted them, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live, and I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So this is the first time in the Old Testament we see God speaking of reaching his original goal another way. He's saying, I will send someone and he will make things right. But what God is saying, because his original plan is that we live fully in his presence, is not simply I'm going to come deal with sin, but I'm going to make a way for you to live in my presence as I originally designed. What has been lost will be restored. Your intimate relationship with God the Father and the presence of the Holy Spirit. But for the Holy Spirit to come and indwell us as he once did, he needed a place that was suitable for him to live, a place where he had room to dwell. You still with me? Okay, here we go. The Old Testament teaches us that a holy God cannot live, cannot dwell in an unholy place. That's why the Holy Spirit no longer inhabited humanity. He would simply come upon them and empower them from time to time. Everything about God is pure and just and good. So if humanity, if humans wanted God to come and live among them, they had to prepare a holy place. 
This is why God gave Moses really specific instructions while the people of Israel were living in the wilderness about how to build a tabernacle. A tabernacle is a fancy word for tent. These were nomadic people. They had their own tents. And God said, if you want me to come and live among you, you need to create for me a holy place. The people were like, yeah, God, we want you to live with us. So we said, okay, make me a house. In Exodus 25 through 31, six entire chapters, God gives very specific instructions to the Israelites about how they were going to create this tabernacle, this house. It would be unlike any other place because it was going to be holy and suitable for the presence of God. Then Exodus 35 through 40 talk about them doing every single thing God told them to do in order to build this tabernacle. And at the end of chapter 40, when everything's done, this is what it says. The cloud covered the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That's the presence of the Holy Spirit. Moses could no longer enter the tabernacle because the cloud had settled down over it, and the glory of God filled the tabernacle. The Spirit of God came to dwell, came to live, to rest in a holy place that they had prepared for them. But they couldn't go in and be with him. Why? Because Moses was still infected by the virus. The sin virus. He himself was unclean. So now they've got this house where God lives, but they can't go in to be with him. They know he's present. They see a a cloud of fire by night, a pillar of smoke during the day resting over the tabernacle. But they couldn't go into his presence. So they prepared a physical place for him to dwell. But then God says, now, if you're going to be a holy people, you not only have to build a holy place, but I have some instructions for you as well, how to prepare yourselves to live like a holy people. When they met with God in Mount Sinai after they left Egypt, God made a covenant with them, made an agreement, an arrangement, a promise. And in that covenant, God said, I will be with you if you will live as a holy people. And he gave them hundreds of commandments to show them what it meant to live as a holy people. These commandments were designed to to raise their attitudes and raise their behaviors until they became holy like him. In other words, God is saying, This is what holy people live like. This is what people of God live like. This is, between you and me, how Adam and Eve would have lived in the garden before sin. So if you want to be a holy people, live this way. Leviticus 20, 26. You must be holy because I am the Lord am holy. I've set you apart from all the other people to be my very own. Now, it's great. God says, I'll come and be among you when you build me this house, and you can be my people when you live this way. But there was a problem. They had a law that they couldn't follow and a temple that they couldn't enter. Because the law that God gave Moses could teach Israel what was right, but it could not empower them to do what was right. Like, this is what it looks like to be holy. Do that. And they tried and they failed. And they tried and they failed and they tried and they failed. It couldn't keep the wrong desires from rising up within them or or giving them the strength to resist them. Last night, about 10 o'clock, I should be brushing my teeth and going to bed, but somebody went to Costco yesterday and bought like a 10-foot bag of potato chips. Massive, my favorite kind, super salty. And I'm I'm laying on the couch thinking, I really want some potato chips. But to be holy, I probably shouldn't eat those. They're not really good. But the desire, do you know that desire? Oh, it rose up in me. Wendy's taking a nap on the couch, and I'm like sneaking into the kitchen because I don't want to disturb her, right? That's the only reason. 
and those, those 10 foot bags of chips, I mean, they come with like an internal amplifier and, and dogs and wives hear them really well. So I, I pull them out and I, and I'm looking at them like, no, be holy. Like Wendy is holy. Just brush your teeth and go to bed. But the desire rising up. And so I put four chips, four chips on a paper towel. Like, well, that's not going to satisfy anything. So I kind of turned the bag upside down and whacked back over and laid on the couch. And, and the chips are just big enough that you can't put them all the way in your mouth and, like, chew them super quietly. So I take a bite and kind of look over, and one eye opens. The conviction of the Holy Spirit came to rest. This is the problem with the law. The law said don't do these things and do do these things, but it didn't empower them to make the right decision. Paul actually goes on to say in, in his, his letters to the churches that through the law, it painted a picture of how to be holy, but it just showed me how not holy I was. Because even if I did all of the external things that I was supposed to do, there always came a point in time when I realized there was something inside of me that was not right. So what do we do about the problem? Well, as Israel struggled with their own inability to live as holy people, to live as people in whom the Spirit of God could dwell, God spoke of another covenant that was to come, a covenant that was different than the one they were presently failing at. And there were three, three prophets who spoke of this covenant and what would happen, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and a man named Joel. And Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 31, the day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. That's the covenant, the law. Just they broke that one, though I love them as a husband loves his wife. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel. I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they be reading the rules of the law to figure out what they're supposed to do. The law will be internalized, written on their own hearts. Goes on and says, they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord. For everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already, says the Lord. I will forgive their wickedness. And then listen to this. I will never again remember their sins. This is one of the things this new covenant was going to bring into effect. Ezekiel speaks of it this way. God says, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And listen, I will put my spirit in you so that you will respond to my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. Something is going to happen in a new covenant that God is going to institute that is going to alter the effects of our sin in such a way that the Spirit of God can dwell within us again, actually live inside of us. Now, there are a number of, of promises that God makes in this new covenant, and I, I just want to highlight a couple of them for you. The first is this. God will initiate it. I will make a new covenant. This is not something that was going to be dependent on us or that we were somehow going to be able to generate. God, in his sovereignty and his love for us, was going to do something himself that would allow the Spirit of God to dwell within humanity again. 
And he says, one of the effects will be, I will write my instructions on your heart. No more stone tablets. No more scrolls. The law of God will be written on your heart. You will know what you are to do. You will know what you are not to do. I will forgive your sins, he says, and I will forget them. We're going to touch on that in a second. God does not have amnesia, but God makes a decision in how he relates to us in our sin under the new covenant where he doesn't remember our sins anymore. And I'm going to show you in a moment why that's so important. I'm going to give you a new heart. That thing inside of you where you don't want to do the right thing, you'll want to do the right thing. I will give you a heart that wants to obey me. I will give you, he says, a new spirit. The spirit that is dead within you, that cannot respond to God, will come alive again. And then he says, I will place my own spirit within you. In other words, what was lost in the garden because of Adam and Eve's sin, humanity living in the full presence of the Spirit of God, is going to be restored. God has found another way to reach that goal of restoring humanity to his original intent. He's just going about it another way. He would find a way to deal with the sin and the pollution that has made us an unfit dwelling place for his spirit. And where we were spiritually dead, we would come to life again. How you doing? It's a lot. I know. You still with me? Give me a quick head nod. Okay, because this is where it starts to get fun. I want you to fast forward with me to the Gospels. It's, a, it's a, a feast, a celebration in Israel. Everybody is gathered in the temple. And Jesus, while there, there's, this, there's this amazing ceremony, I won't get into it, the last part of the ceremony is they pour out these massive containers of water, pouring them out over the altar. They go everywhere. Jesus is standing in the temple courts, probably with thousands of people, and he starts yelling. Now, Jesus often spoke of the new covenant, and every time he did, he would tie it directly to his death, to his resurrection, and the coming of the Holy Spirit. This is no exception. It says in John 7, on the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and he shouted to the crowd, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare, rivers of living water will flow from his heart. Now, remember the backdrop. There's water everywhere. John has an aside. When he said living water, he was speaking of the Spirit who would be given to everyone who believed in him. But the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not entered his glory. Anybody who wants to, is thirsty, come to me and drink. Out of him will flow rivers of living water. John says he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Hadn't come yet. Jesus hadn't entered his glory. What does it mean to enter his glory? It speaks of his death, his resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of the Father we talked about last week. The promise Jesus is making is that the infilling of the Holy Spirit would follow his death and resurrection because the cross would deal with, would remove our uncleanness so that the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' words, would not only be with us as he had been, but would once again be in us. God had to deal with the sin issue first, and once he dealt with the sin issue made us clean, then we become, catch this, holy vessels in which a Holy Spirit can live. Fast forward one more time. We're in the upper room. It's the Last Supper. The disciples are gathered around the temple celebrating the Passover with Jesus. 
Remember, the Passover that they're celebrating was a reminder of when God delivered them from captivity in Egypt. So it was a festival that looked back at God bringing deliverance. But part of the Passover festival also looked forward in anticipation to God doing this for his people one more time, a second deliverance. They're seated around the table, and there was a cup that was set aside, a special cup. And Jesus takes that cup, and he holds it, and he makes a statement. This cup which is poured out for you is the what? The new covenant in my blood. This cup poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Does that sound familiar? The day is coming, he said in Jeremiah, where I will make a new covenant. And what would that new covenant do? I will forgive their wickedness and will never again remember their sins. And as he presented the cup to the disciples, he was asking them to believe that because of the death he was about to die on the cross, they would receive the new covenant promise to Jeremiah and Ezekiel. What they said was about to happen is about to happen right now. That's the new covenant. And if the disciples drank from the cup, it meant that they believed their sins would be both forgiven and forgotten. When he says take and drink, he is asking them to respond to him by faith. The same way he invites you and I to respond to him by faith when we surrender our lives to him. We're not simply giving up. We're saying, I believe that the promises of the new covenant were put into place by your death and your resurrection, and I am choosing by faith to trust you not only with my present, but with my future and my eternity. The disciples were saying that they believed God would take their hearts of stone and give them hearts that love God and wanted to obey him. And when they drank from the cup, just as we drink from the cup when we share communion together, they were making the statement, I believe this. Romans 8.3. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. That first covenant, it couldn't do it. God could fulfill his part, but we kept blowing it. So God did what that covenant couldn't do. He sent his son in a body like the bodies we have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for what? For our sins. By, com- by becoming a man and dying on a cross in our place, say our place, Jesus spiritually cleansed our body. Now, what I'm about to tell you, 100% true, it's in the Bible. I got to tell you, I don't understand it. Like, I don't understand how God could do this, but, but his ways are higher than my ways. There, some of the things that, that God does and he invites us to believe by faith are simply a mystery to our natural mind. By dying on the cross, Jesus spiritually cleansed our bodies. He made us clean. And that is is what allows the Holy Spirit now to live within us. It's why Paul says to people, your body is a temple. He's not being figurative. He's being literal. The tabernacle, the temple, was where the Spirit of God came to live. And because of what Christ did on the cross, dealing with our sin... And remember, the covenant said it would be forgiven and it would be forgotten. Because of what Christ did on the cross, you and I now stand clean and holy before God, which is what qualifies us to become receivers, receptors, vessels in which the Holy Spirit lives. 
when we are born again, when we surrender our lives, placed our trust in Christ to deliver on the promises of the new covenant, Scripture says we are married. That's what the, It says his spirit joins himself to ours, and, and the original language is married. Because the two of us have become one, in God's eyes, when Jesus died for our sins, we died with him. And when he rose again to new life, we rose again with him. If Jesus carried our sins to the cross and was crucified, was executed for them, and we are found in Christ, God sees his death as our death, there is nothing left for us to be judged for. When he rose to new life, we rose with him. The old, the sinful, the polluted part of me is gone, and Scripture says, I have been made new in Christ. It's what it means when it says, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. New like Adam and Eve in the garden before their sin. You catch that? I'm going to say it again. When Scripture says we are a new creation, it means new creation like Adam and Eve in the garden before they sinned. From God's perspective, when we are born again, that is how he regards us. And because we are in his eyes now, cleansed and without sin, there is no longer any spiritual barrier between us and God. It can be a little hard to get your head around, can it? Let, let me give you a, <laughs> I didn't even get a yes for that, and I know it's true. That's okay. That's okay. We're, we're landing the plane here. Let me illustrate it for you this way. Scripture says you died. And your life is now hidden in Christ. Not speaking to everyone, but speaking to those of us who are born again. You died, and your life is now hidden in Christ. This is my driver's license. My identity. When I went on base yesterday, I, I had to give them my driver's license. And with that driver's license, they are able to look at my record and see what I have done wrong. Not enough that they didn't let me on the base. You died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Christ, me. When God looks at me, because his covenant says my sins have been forgiven and forgotten, this is what he sees. He sees Jesus. He doesn't see my brokenness. He doesn't see my failure. He doesn't see my sin. He sees Jesus because I have been hidden in Christ with God, which means I now share in the holiness of Jesus. Between you and me, I often don't feel very holy. But the fact of the matter is, from God's perspective, according to his word, when he looks at me, he doesn't see my record of wrong. He is faithful to his new covenant that said he would forgive my wickedness and remember my sins no more. When God looks at you, he sees his son. He doesn't see what you did on the way to church. He doesn't see what you did yesterday. He didn't see what you did two minutes ago. When God looks at you, he sees the sinlessness of his son. So you are cleansed and holy before God, not because of what you have done, not because of what I have done, but because of what Christ has done on my behalf. And because of that, Holy Spirit is now able to come and indwell me, live within me. 
Now somebody needs to just park here for a minute. Because if we lose sight of what Christ's death and resurrection has done for us, we can fall back into condemnation and assume his presence has left us. I'm a horrible human being. I've sinned. I've failed. I've done wrong. I relapsed. I cheated. Pick your sin. Holy Spirit doesn't leave us. And when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. Now, there's a whole other tangent. Paul goes on later that, like, so should we just keep sinning and being awesome in that? No. No, he, he, he's really clear about walking out our salvation. But what this says to me is in those moments of failure, Holy Spirit is present to give me the strength to re-engage and do what my born-again heart that wants to do right needs to do. He is within us. We can't allow our troubled conscience to prevent God's power from strengthening us in the moments we need it because we think he's left, because he hasn't, which is why we pray, welcome Holy Spirit. Welcome Holy Spirit is not a prayer that we pray every time we just want something to be awesome. Sometimes we pray welcome Holy Spirit right when we're in the middle of messing up. I don't, Paul said the things I don't want to do, I do. The things I want to do, I don't do. Woe is me. What am I to do? Do you know what he said the answer was in the next chapter? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who lives within us and will empower and will strengthen and will enable us to walk out righteously the things that God invites us to do. How we doing? We're going to worship together in a moment because I just I feel like this last piece is something that really just needs, needs to land. There's been a lot of time where I've walked with my head down to excursion and condemnation because of my failure. Instead of going, oh, wait a minute. God sees Christ. Holy Spirit is present with me to encourage and to enable and to lead me forward. Next week, we're going to talk about going to get out of the Gospels and start getting into Acts. And we'll, we'll talk about what happens when we make ourselves fully available to the Holy Spirit. But for this morning, what I, want, what I want to land with us is that when we place our trust in Christ for our salvation, when we acknowledge that he is the risen Son of God, our sins are forgiven and they are forgotten. We celebrate forgiven. We forget forgotten. You are righteous before God if you are born again. Scripture says you have been clothed in robes of righteousness. You have been wrapped in, clo- in robes of righteousness. You have received a new heart and a new spirit. The Holy Spirit has joined himself to you and promised that he will never leave. And we're going to celebrate that. This morning, there's a song that we learned just moments ago, and one of the things it says is, look where I'm standing now. I'm standing on the promise of Jesus, the the miracle power. Look where I'm standing now. And some of us have been trying to walk forward looking backwards. And I think Holy Spirit this morning wants to remind us of the work that God has already done. And rather than 
worry about what we were, I think God would invite us to celebrate who he has made us to be. I want you to stand with your feet. Stand with your feet. Yeah, I speak for a living. You are the people of God. Called by his name. Bought by his blood. The chains that once bound you have been broken. Those whom the Son has set free are indeed, are in fact, free. And my prayer for us this morning is if any of us carry any residual shame of anything that's happened in the past, that if we have surrendered our lives to Christ, we would begin to see where we are standing now. Bow your heads with me for just a moment. Because before we do that, I want want to pray. Before I pray, I want to extend an invitation. If you're here this morning and you have never placed your faith in Christ, you have been trying to be good or trying to be right by doing all of the right things. And this morning, Holy Spirit is just starting to talk to you and go, you don't have to do it that way. If you will trust that Jesus is the Son of God, if you will trust that he is going to fulfill the promises of that new covenant, all of those promises can be yours. New heart, new spirit. Scripture says new mind. If you've never acknowledged Jesus that way and you want to acknowledge him that way this morning, would you just... Would you just signify that by raising your hand high enough for me to see? Because I want to acknowledge, I want to celebrate. I see you, sir. Thank you. I see that hand. I see you, and I see you. Thank you. I see you in the back over here. I see you. Thank you. Anyone else? I see you, sister, by the wall, by the window. I see you to my left. Anyone else? Thank you, Jesus. Lord Jesus, we place our trust in you as the risen Savior, Son of the Most High God. We confess that by faith, and this morning we receive the promises of your new covenant, that our sins will not only be forgiven, but forgotten. And as we begin to lift our voices in praise to you this morning, confessing our faith in what you've done and where we now stand, let the lies of our adversaries that have bound us in shame or in fear of failure fall in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Please visit us at mylfc.com for more information about our church. Thank you so much for listening.